Hello, and welcome to this very special edition of A Glass of Seawater. I don't know why I said special, it's just a normal episode. This is one of the normal episodes. My name is Bavin Patel, and I am joined by Scott. Hi, I'm Scott. Uh, James. Hey, everyone. And Dr. Sandra. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, we have an actual professional person who achieves things in this world. So uh, does everyone just go around, briefly introduce themselves, because we've never had any of you on the table. Oh, by the way, Phil is here. No idea why, but Phil is here. So yeah, does it, uh, Scott, who are you? What yeah. is your research? So I'm Scott, uh, one of the low temperature people here. Um, I'm actually a regular temperature person, but I work with low temperature plasmas. Um, I work with um, spacecraft propulsion. Uh, so I try and make small satellites stay in space for longer, which means you don't have to launch as many of them, which makes them cheaper. And it's just generally better if you don't have satellites falling out of the sky every few years. Yeah, making things last longer, that's what Scott does. James? Right, everyone, so I'm James, and I actually work in the crossover region between low-temperature plasmas and fusion energy. And really what I, what I try and do is keep the two sides as separate as possible so they don't start any fights. Um, I work primarily on the neutral beam injection systems, actually making negative ions in order to have the fusion plasma running in the first place. Um, Dr. Sandra. Yeah, hi, I'm Sandra. I'm a postdoctoral research at the University of York. And um, I'm looking particularly at low temperature plasma, so I'm interested in fi figuring out what species are produced in low temperature, temperature plasmas by using lasers and optical diagnostics, um, particularly for bio biomedical applications of these types of plasmas. So we actually have quite a wide variety panel when it comes to low temperature plasmas. But when people generally think of plasmas, generally what they think is, oh, really, really hot gas. Because in order to get a plasma, what you generally tend to do is heat up a gas. So, how can you have a low temperature plasma? It just seems kind of... What's the word, you know? Counterintuitive. vocabulary is on par today, this is great. <laughs> anyway, so why can't... What's a low temperature plasma? Does that even make sense? Well, uh, yes, it does. Uh, otherwise, this talk would be a bit... Um, it would end pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, low temperature plasmas, when we say low temperature, what we usually mean is that one particular type of what we call species, so one particular type of atom or, or something in there is, is lower temperature than the rest. So in a low temperature plasma, the uh, neutrals and the ions, the big heavy ones, they are actually quite low temperature, but the electrons are still really, really, really hot. They are still buzzing around and have a lot of energy. Um, and it's that difference in temperature between the two things that makes them really useful. I see. So what, what kind of temperature are we talking about when we say low temp? Because are we still talking like 10 degrees, 100 degrees, a billion degrees? Well, it varies so much between what the plasma application is for. So as I'm sure Sandra's going to come in soon to tell everyone, you can have them at very low temperatures indeed, low enough to actually treat biomedical samples, in which case you're talking about 37 degrees roughly. Equally, you can have quite high temperature ones you can have plasmas that you use for welding and they're obviously operating many thousand degrees celsius and so really the temperature of what the plasmas are operating at depends massively on what the application is for so it's not the actual temperature of the plasma that makes it a in quotations low temperature plasma close quotations it's that the fact that some of the electrons are much hotter than everything else yeah exactly mm -hmm. i see so what do we use them for and where do you find them um, you can find low temperature plasmas pretty much everywhere around you. 
So, for example, like um, natural phenomenons, like um, if you see an arc or a flame or the northern lights, that is the plasma. But they are also used for quite a wide range of industrial applications, such as etching processes or deposition processes. So they are used quite widely. I mean, to be honest, uh, low temperature plasmas are probably the most common type of plasma people listening to this are going to see. You don't typically see or think of plasmas when you're walking around, right? It's solid liquid gas. Plasmas are this mystical, magical science stuff. Um, but actually, things like uh, like lightning, right. um, that's a plasma, and that's actually quite hot. It's still low temperature, but it's actually quite a hot, right. uh, a hot plasma. Um, neon signs uh, in windows, they, they use uh, plasmas, uh, fluorescent lights, that kind of stuff, those type of tubes, they're plasmas as well. So, yeah, the in terms of the actual plasmas that people are going to see, low temperature ones are probably the ones that they're going to they're gonna come in contact with. I see, so you have this full spectrum of temperatures of plasmas. Yeah. You also have a spectrum when it comes to densities as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, uh, we do actually span quite a large range, so... Things like uh, uh, Aurora and, uh, and as, as Sandra mentioned, uh, we've got things like the Northern Lights. They're really diffuse and not very dense at all. They're really just you know scatterings of particles around, and they're really glowy. And then you've got other things such as uh, atmospheric pressure. Uh, so flames, for example, if you've got hot enough flame, you've got lots of uh, excited species in there, and and lots of things that would considered to be a plasma. Um, so there's there's a wide range of, of pressures. In fact, actually, the surface of the sun. Not the corona, not the core, but the surface of the sun is actually a low-temperature plasma as well. Um, so you get a, a massive range of things that you wouldn't consider to be low-temperature, but actually yeah. are low-temperature plasmas. I think the name low-temperature plasma is a bit of a misnomer, I guess. Because it just doesn't... To me, it just seems like a terrible name. You probably more say, like, non-equilibrium plasma or non-thermal plasma. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Equilibrium yeah. being when something is in balance. So. Uh, for example, if I'm sitting on a chair, then I, I'm at equilibrium with everything. If I'm falling off of a building, I'm not at equilibrium. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And when the ions neutrals have different energies to the electrons, then you're not on equilibrium with each other. Right. Yep. So that explains how you have these really hot electrons not being in equilibrium with the cold ions. Yeah, yep. exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. Oh, very nice. oh, just just to clarify, <laughs> when I'm falling out of a building, when I hit terminal velocity, I think I'm at equilibrium. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, it depends on how the building is, you might not hit that. So, right. you know. so if I'm jumping <laughs> off the Burj Khalifa, I'll hit equilibrium, but if I'm jumping off of my house, I'm just going to be in a lot of pain. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much happened. It also happens with these plasmas, I wouldn't touch most of them, to be fair. Yeah, but yeah, they don't no. generally jump off buildings. No, they don't. They don't no. jump off buildings. No. They're not alive. No, so we, you know. But, uh, I mean, although you can touch some of them, Sandro will touch on this later on, actually, with the, the biomedical ones. There are a range of plasmas that would be quite beneficial, actually, to touch. I see. So, how do you make one? Because you've got lightning and other stuff, but how, do we, how can we make one all the time in a lab or just in general? Like, what do we do to make a, a low-temperature plasma? Well, I mean, we said earlier that low-temperature plasmas have three species. We have the electrons, the neutrals, and the ions. Yeah. We have some far more exotic things inside there as well, but those are the three core ones. And really... All that a plasma is, is a gas and you just strip the electrons away from some of the neutral species to create some ions. And we can strip those electrons away in many different in many different ways, but the one we usually use is using an electric field. We simply pass the electric field over the gas and we strip the electrons away from the neutrals. How, how strong do the electric fields need to be in general? They need to be, uh, again, it depends on the density, but you're talking in air, you need something like about 10,000 volts per millimetre, I think, to break it down into a plasma. That's, so quite high. That's very high. Just quite to high. give you some perspective, like what, AA batteries? 
Yeah. Normal ones are like what, one point five volts. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I won't lick it. Yeah, I would. I still wouldn't lick it. Yeah. Um, have you ever tried licking a double A battery? No. Oh, no. You know the batteries that you have where the positive and the the the, the square. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ones. the nine volt ones. Yeah, the nine volt. Yeah. I love licking those. I just get a nice tingly <laughs> sensation. It always feels so good. And now we can see why Bob does fusion plasmas. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Don't. Li- I'm a. I'm a theoretician. Don't let me near yeah, the experiment. Just, I will lick it. Yeah, whilst jumping off a building. I mean, 99.9% of everything in the observable universe is a plasma, I believe. Yeah, uh, well, 99.9% uh, of oh. all the matter. Oh, oh, there we go. Because actually, I think you'll find most of it's dark energy and dark Ooh. matter. If we ignore Scott being pedantic, 99.9% of the observable universe, that word observable, comes into oh, play. Oh, no, he did say observable. He's got True, you. he did say observable. Yeah, I'll get away with that. Yeah, that's, that's a good get energy, of course. I think, I think you should have bowed to James. Oh, but if a barrel hit the microphone, so I think I'll, I'll just I'll respectfully it's a, nod. Oh, that, that's quite that's quite that's well that's well revered in the scientific world. A respectful nod. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. goes like you know, getting a PhD, Nobel Prize. Oh, I forget what the podcast. Hand very low, getting a PhD. Hand middle, getting a Nobel Prize. Hand very high, getting a, a nod. Yeah. From Scott Doyle. From, From Scott Doyle. Specific, yeah. No one else. No. Anyway, moving back to plasma. Moving back to plasma. <laughs> so we have to have these really high electric fields, so we can generate them just with what you say, microwaves, radio waves. Um, so usually we use radio frequency, right? Um, but you can use microwaves as well, right? Because I actually know an experiment which you definitely should not do at home. But if you cut a grape in half, but leave a little bit of the skin attached, and then pop it inside the microwave with both of the the fleshy bits facing down. And you turn it on for like a minute, you get a plasma. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. don't do that. Yeah. There's a lot of YouTube videos. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you can see it being done. If if you were to do it, but unrelated to this podcast, uh, I would recommend putting a glass bowl upside down over the grape, and that way you won't burn the inside of your microwave. But again, I wouldn't do it at all, even if you did that. Or blame it on your housemate. Either one works fine. Yeah, that also works. So we 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 uh, set up this electric field. And then what? That starts ripping off the electrons. Does it rip off all of the electrons, or some of them, or does that depend? Like, so the plasmas that we are talking about have a very low ionization degree, typically. So if you compare it to fusion plasma, for example, where you really have a fully ionized plasma, this is definitely not the case for um, these l- low temperature plasmas. So. Um, for some of the plasmas, for example, the ionization degree, degree can be lower than 10 to the minus 7, which roughly translates into only every millionth particle in the plasma is actually an ion, and the rest are neutrals. So if you imagine, what, there are like 20 million people in London? Something like that, yeah. If only 20 of them were shirtless, that is, what, that's the same sort of thing. That is a fantastic analogy. Because, yeah. yeah. well, if you think about I mean, it... Actually, that's true, but I bet you there are more people in London shirtless than there are ions in typical low-temperature plasma. Yeah, but even now, <laughs> with the, the terrible beast from the East nonsense, I think that's still actually true. Yeah. And we can definitely make that, you know, make that true if yeah. we need to. We can, like, a whole, our entire Wi-Fi can go down, just go shirtless. Maybe not, maybe not... Not altogether. That would be weird. No, that'd be really weird. So we have we have a, we have very low ionizations. Is what this is the main thing. Mm-hmm. So most of the most of the particles in your in your plasma in your low temp plasma are actually neutrals, and you just have a couple of electrons and a couple of ions yeah, that are exactly. free roaming around. So why why don't you have? Because because generally when you when things like aren't in equilibrium, they tend towards equilibrium. So. When I'm jumping off the building, I start accelerating until the air resistance match, uh, matches the gravitational force, and then I start going at normal speed. So why don't we have 
all of the energy from those electrons going straight back into the ions and just balancing out and just becoming normal again? Uh, just a difference in, in weight. Um, so the, uh, or mass rather, the uh, electrons uh, weigh, uh, well, about 1,840 times less than so a hydrogen yeah. atom. I An mean. approximation there. Yeah, approximation. It's a bit different. Plus about, about, about 20, let's yeah. say. It's, it's a, let's say 2,000, okay? So an electron is roughly 2,000 times uh, as massive as a hydrogen atom. Mm. And um, unlike in fusion, where almost everything is, is different types of hydrogen, in low-temperature plasmas, we often use different things, oxygen, nitrogen, argon, which are much heavier. So often the, uh, the ion or the neutral is tens of thousands of times heavier than the electron. And so basically uh, trying to trying to heat up ions with electrons is like throwing grapes at an elephant. It really doesn't do anything. We really um, like grapes on this podcast. Yeah. I mean, the, the analogies are getting worse and worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, if you imagine an ion as an elephant, the uh, electrons are similar in, in mass to a, a grape. They, they wouldn't be too far off, actually, to be fair. So then, I mean, so the, the electrons are trying to push it back to equilibrium. It's just they're just so small that they just have no real effect. Yep. Yeah, it's just look at it and go, nah. 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 Come at me, bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's just exactly right. Yeah. The only thing they do occasionally do is the electrons will um, they'll hit other electrons, or not necessarily hit them, but they'll tug on them and they'll push other electrons off of the um, of the neutrals, and so they'll continue to ionize things, but they won't necessarily heat them. They won't push the ions around. They'll just tug electrons off of them. Yeah. Okay. So what we have is a continuous process where we're ionizing more neutrals from the electrons, tugging electrons away from the neutrals, creating more ions, more electrons. And those electrons are also then going to be striking back into some of the ions yep. to recombine and produce some neutral species as well. Yeah, another important process, just because we're just talking about it now, is dissociation. So if you, for example, have a lot of molecules in your plasma, the electrons can actually dissociate these molecules into smaller molecules or atoms. And these species can be quite important in certain industrial applications or biomedical applications. And on that note as well, I mean, we're going to get to the applications a little bit later on, but when you have this dissociation, the molecule can also, as it dissociates, actually capture an electron, and that's how you produce your negative ions. So positive ions are stripping away a single electron and creating a positive ion, but the negative ions are usually occur, usually produced, at least in the volume of the plasma, by actually dissociating a molecule, an electron attaches to it, and therefore you actually get a negative ion produced. So from, from what I understand is there's just a lot of different processes going on inside. You've got electrons hitting other, well, pulling on other electrons. You've got electrons hitting atoms and neutrals and ions. And there's a bunch of different things going on. So I think what this tends to do is that you have quite interesting and complicated behaviors when it comes to low temperature plasmas. And I think that's part of the reason why they're so widely used, why they have such a breadth when it comes to industry. You can use them in like a billion different things. Yeah, I mean, it links back a little bit to what Scott said earlier, that in fusion plasmas, you only really use hydrogen or isotopes of hydrogen. Whereas in low-temperature plasmas, you can really use anything. And so we use noble gases like helium or argon. We use reactive species like oxygen or nitrogen. And this whole plethora of species you can use really means they can be tailored to almost any application. Yeah, I mean, the molecular side of things is one to touch back on as well. Um, there's a whole growing um, area of, um, for example, one thing that happens to be a research area in here in York, of um, taking CO2 from the air and, uh, and breaking that down into carbon monoxide and oxygen. 
And uh, as we know, global warming is a major factor. And I believe the fusion people have touched on that because that's a large area of what they do, trying to make power. But um, if you can take things like CO, carbon monoxide, which although it's quite a, a, a toxic gas, it's also very ex expensive and used to make a lot of other non-toxic things. So it's really good if you could potentially profitize or make, make profitable removing CO2 from the air. Um, and you can do that by using plasmas to strip the CO2 and you take one of the O's and you ping it off and you end up with CO and O. Could you do that on a large enough scale that it would make a difference? Well, the thing is, the key there would be making it profitable. If you can make it profitable to take electricity and air and make gas that you can sell, then people will start doing it. Right, okay. And then it might eventually make an yeah. actual difference. Exactly. exactly. But we need some money-making ideas. Yeah. Listeners, yeah. get on that. But I mean, equally, it could be things like if you're a factory that produces a lot of CO2, you're making cars, let's say. You could have one of these plasma sources set up. As the exhaust fumes come out of the factory, you can actually strip one of the oxygens away from the CO2, and you can produce carbon dioxide right there in the factory. Yep. So therefore, you can lower your emissions, which obviously there's lots of government incentives to do this at this, this stage in time. Therefore, you also produce a profitable product, carbon monoxide, and everyone benefits. And a carbon tax would do it straight away, wouldn't it? Yeah. a massive carbon tax on it, and everyone would stop building. Phil is not on this episode, and we will ignore his comments. <laughs> <laughs> the carbon tax is very good, though, because um, <clears throat> there was actually an incentive set up a while ago to reduce methane. Uh, in this way. Okay. So you could take methane and oxygen in a plasma and you could produce CO2, which sounds bad, but methane is many, many, many times worse than CO2 as a, a greenhouse gas. So taking methane and turning it into CO2 is actually um, not a bad idea, and then the CO2 can be further processed. Yeah, so it's like the lesser of two evils. Exactly, you're, you're yeah. just reducing reducing the, the deadliness of the gas slowly. Scott's not step. saying he hates cows, but that's what everyone's hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically what I was talking about was running around a farm lighting cow farts. Um, that was basically this entire incentive. And then you got paid millions of pounds by producing uh, less uh, greenhouse gases. Great. If you light a cow fart, that's also a low-temp plasma, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, I think most things you can do is basically a low-temp plasma. <laughs> you hit a ball hard enough, you'll probably create a low-temp plasma. Oh, yeah, yeah that's, uh, that, that's our business model. <laughs> <laughs> Not dissimilar to the American company that wants lots of pistons or hammers smashing into oh, a... Uh, I'm telling you, like, general fusion comes up yeah. all the time. And like people love the idea because it just... I want to say ridiculous, but not ridiculous, because I want to be politically correct, but it's ridiculous, and it's amazing. <laughs> I love the fact that someone's just having a crack. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can have any driver you want, and they took that literally. I mean, I, yeah. yeah. I really want to see tennis balls used as drivers. Oh, yeah. I mean... To fuse other tennis balls. <laughs> Andy yeah. Murray, if you are listening, feel free to come on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So I think when we talk about plasmas in general, something that people talk about is something called a sheath. What exactly is a sheath and how is it useful and basically what is it? That was a terribly worded question. Oh my god, that was the worst thing I could have done. So just to make Bav completely redundant, the question was what actually is a sheath? Not like so, a sheath in your weapon sheath. Yeah, no, this is this is a, a sheath is in, I guess, the, the, it is kind of like that, because the sheath goes around the weapon, right? So yes. the sheath goes around the plasma. That's kind of where I assume the word comes from. Um, oh, we don't yeah. weaponize plasmas. Um, anyway, well, we you may have noticed the entire universe is not made of plasma. Only 99.9% .9 apparently. Observable universe. Of the observable universe. <laughs> I better not forget Scott that. even forgets his own word. Yeah, I do. I forget everything all the time. But... Whenever you've got a plasma transitioning into not a plasma, then you get the sheath. And the sheath is just uh, a, an area of the plasma that behaves differently from the center. 
Right. It's uh, it's where all the electric fields are. It's where all the par- the particles move around and, and end up getting accelerated. And it's 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 the fun fun zone. You can think of it a little bit like how the core region of a fusion reactor is different to the attachment region of a fusion reactor. Yeah. You have a transition between your core plasma, and then the solid that must surround the vessel. That is the vessel that surrounds the plasma. Yeah, the so thing is that you can get high electric fields in the sheath and that can accelerate charged particles towards surfaces and that is also very important for certain industrial applications. Yeah, so a sheath is essentially the... It arises from the interaction between a plasma and some sort of surface and that essentially creates some weird stuff. Yeah, yeah. and as Sandra mentioned, it, it, the reason the sheath is there is mostly to do with this thing that we call quasi-neutrality. Um, yeah, so the main idea is that the definition of a plasma is that it consists of positively and negatively charged particles, but the number of densities of positive um, particles and negatively charged particles is equal if you look f- from far away at the plasma. So although we have lots of charged particles in the plasma, um, the total plasma is quasi-neutral. Yeah, and for the sheath, that is not, that is not necessarily valid anymore. Right, because we're going to the edge of the plasma, so the exactly. rules are kind of getting a bit yeah. bent. So what happens then? We have what usually happens is you're ionizing your gas to create a plasma. When you put a metal surface there, what happens is the electrons respond closest to that metal surface. So the electrons are the lighter particles, therefore they respond fastest to any surface you put in there, whether that's a metal vessel or whether that's a probe you stick into the plasma, or your tongue if you try and lick it. These electrons get to that surface fastest. Therefore, they negatively charge up that surface because the electrons are negative charged. In return, the positive ions then see a negative surface. Positive, negative, light to attract. Therefore, the positive ions come towards the surface. And it's that process that actually generates the sheath. And one thing you mentioned a little bit earlier was talking about, well, what drives a plasma? And we said it's electric fields. And we say usually we're looking at radio frequency or microwave. We're looking at AC field, looking at AC. So alternating current. Yeah, so alternating current. And so what you're doing is you are changing the way the charge actually enters the plasma, and therefore you're having this process continue backwards and forwards all right. the time. So therefore you're having electrons attracted, electrons repelled, ions attracted, etc., etc. So do you need to have this AC current? That's a tautology. Do you need to have this AC for these kind of plasmas to work, or can you have a DC plasma? You can have DC plasmas, yeah. Um, the, uh, they, they work slightly differently. Uh, they were actually the first plasmas that were experimented with way back in the you know the late 19th, uh, 19th century. They're called glow discharges. Um, I'm not sure if I can think of a good example, really, but I was going to say fluorescent lights, but fluorescent lights typically work on AC because they're plugged into the power. But um, they look kind of the same. They're just a sort of glass tube filled with, the, with gas, and you can put a DC uh, in there. And if you get a high enough current, you will eventually actually um, break down. If you have a voltage, you'll break down the, uh, the plasma. But right. DC ones are... Not as interesting, in my opinion, as AC, because with the DC, it sort of sets up and then it stays still. But with AC, you're able to actually control things and move things around by changing the voltage and current. So because it's going, because of that interaction between the really fast electrons and the ions getting pulled behind them, because that's constantly changing, then you're going to get continuous, interesting physics happening. And you can control it as well, because you can change the frequency and the amplitude. Whereas with the DC, all you can really do is a larger voltage or a smaller voltage. That's all you can really do. And so with AC, the actual sheet itself gets smaller and larger, depending on which point in the the alternate current cycle Mm. you're actually at. And most of the interesting things happen when the sheaf is getting larger or smaller. This is quite an important thing, because whenever you have low-temp plasmas interacting with anything, you're going to get this sheath form. So firstly, understanding how that sheath forms is important, and then that allows you to 
control it and then be able to do a lot, bunch of interesting things. Speaking of interesting things, what are some of the things that we use these low temp plasmas for on like a day-to-day -day basis or just in general in industry? I mean, I think you could spend the best part of 45 minutes an hour name, naming an exhaustive list of applications. Um, in terms of some of the, the key points, I mean, Sandra is going to talk more about the biomedical applications, but they are very, very numerous. Things of such as when you open some, you go to the shops and you buy yourself a microwave meal because you're being very lazy because you're a PhD who has no time and no money. Hint, hint. Um, <laughs> and you take out the foil wrapper and you open it up. Well, that's been treated with a plasma. It's been treated with a plasma to make sure it's sterile, to make sure there's no nasty bacteria lurking inside there waiting for you. You drive home, you know, you drive home your car, your windscreen has been coated with a plasma to stop it having any, to stop it, to lessen the effect of any chip damage. Um, you have things in history such as every smartphone you use or every computer, or laptop, whatever the microphones we're talking into. All of these things will have low temperature plasmas in order to actually make the microchips. The microelectronics for anything computational based always comes from low temperature plasma. The main thing is you can use it for treating materials or like you can essentially, I say coat, but mm. manipulate the surface of something to try and make it more resistant to like bacteria or more resistant to damage or more resistant to something else. Yeah, and this surface treatment, again, it's the same thing as a sheath. You put a surface next to a plasma, a sheath is going to form, and any surface modification you will do occurs because of that sheath. So what exactly does it tend to do to the surface? Is it... That depends entirely on what the plasma actually is. Right. So you can do things simple as making things hydrophobic or hydrophilic, and that's to say attracts or, de or repels water. So earlier in the podcast, we mentioned some potential biomedical applications of these low-temperature plasmas. So, uh, Sandra, why don't you... Sorry, Dr. Sandra. Why don't you uh, tell us about some of them, how they're used, and where we use them? Um, so, these atmospheric pressure... Or particularly atmospheric pressure plasmas or low-temperature plasmas are currently a quite hot topic of research. And the idea is that they can be used in the future for several different biomedical applications. For example, um, plasma decontamination or cancer treatment or also wound healing applications. Really? Well, like just you put a plasma on a wound and it starts healing itself. That's the idea, yeah. Or that it at least can help to progress the wound healing process. Oh. So, of course, these are very many different applications. And depending on what you're interested in looking at, um, you have faced very many challenges. So, for example, in the decontamination, decontamination process or if you're thinking of how equipment in hospitals is cleaned at the moment so if you want to reuse for example certain um, equipment that you use for surgery then this involves a large application of heat usually to these things to kill all the bacteria or also using some really nasty chemicals that you probably don't really want to do and plasmas have the great advantage that because they're already named low temperature plasma, so they're relatively cool, they can be operated around room temperature. So they are not very hot and um, they are still very chemically active. So they can um, they produce a lot of re chemically reactive species that can also um, help in the decontamination process. Then you have applications where you, for example, want to work with the plasmas on actual people. And then it gets even more complicated because, um, again, you want to... Not, you want your plasma to not be too hot, so you have, again, to, to work at a temperature regime where your plasma is operated at a quite low temperature. 
And plasmas also offer the advantage that they, are, they can be made quite small. So some of these particularly atmospheric pressure plasmas are only micrometers or millimeters in dimension. So you can have a quite localized treatment of, for example, a wound or, or a cancer. Um, and yes, yeah, so plasmas can have potentially quite um, a lot of advantages to, to methods that already exist. So is there a lot of research currently going into this kind of stuff or is it like an established field? Um, uh, I'm not actually 100% sure, but it has been around for a while, but um, particularly the research on these uh, chemically reactive species, so um, that they are called reactive oxygen-nitrogen species, so if, for example you can produce them by just breaking down air um, using a plasma, and then these species, they are already quite important, for example, in uh, cell signaling, and then the idea is by applying these plasmas or these external reactive species by using a plasma that you can enhance certain processes. And uh, particularly the research on these reactive species is um, relatively new. It has been around for a few tens of years, maybe. Um, but plasmas has, have been used before uh, as well, for example, um, using as, as a scalpel, so more like a mechanical Oh, device. I see. So like to make incisions and yeah, stuff like that? Yeah, like that. Oh, well, that's pretty cool. Like a plasma tiny lightsaber. scalpel, yeah. You're talking a lightsaber. Yeah, oh, it's it is actually yeah. a tiny lightsaber, Tiny lightsaber. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. So a lightsaber for mice. One thing to say about the film... Sorry, I just wanted to point out, James had his hand in the air. <laughs> well, the thing is, right. <laughs> school so we could talk. I will say this. On the podcast they did live, there was lots of little subtle signals when someone wanted to speak, whether that was touching with the glasses or touching the, <laughs> touching the ear or rubbing the nipples, whatever. There were lots of signals for <laughs> when they wanted to speak. something else. One thing to say about the field being somewhat established is actually it's 2013, so five years ago now, the Kinpen, one of these atmospheric pressure plasma jets, actually got CE certified, which is to say that it conforms to the health and safety standards. And there's work going into this now to really, it's up to standard if that makes sense. While we don't understand a lot of the process that goes on, and whilst there's an awful lot left to do in sort of the cancer research field, a lot of progress has been made in the last 10 years. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's this ongoing progress in many, many different institutions looking into everything from sterilization to active tools for uh, surgical procedures. Um, it's definitely one of the most interesting areas to work in, in low temperature plasmas, actually. So yeah, and ideally, so what the outcome is that people really want to understand what is going on from going from the plasma where you create all of your different reactive species down to the cell. Um, so there are a lot of collaborations, for example, with chemists and with biology as well. And also to be able to finally make a plasma source that is tailored for different applications. So how, how do you, because I imagine, especially with biomedical applications, it's quite, you have to be very careful when you're testing these kinds of things. So how do you, how do you test whether you know that this plasma is going to do something? Do you only use like um, models, like computer models, or do you use actual samples of like ask people to come in and test it out, or is it like a mixture, or is there something else? Um, it's definitely a mixture. So you start with doing some basic tests of, um, actually I say basic tests, but actually the plasma diagnostics are really complicated. Um, just looking what is created in your plasma first. So as I said, there are a lot of reactive species. Um, you can imagine if you have a few or like a few reactive species, for example, on your skin that can be beneficial, but if, if there's too many, then this could, of course, also go the other way around. So you have to characterize the plasma sources. Um, 
and people also do a lot of uh, simulations to to figure out um, what is created in the plasma. So you don't only have reactive species, but you also have UV light and electric fields. And the impact of all of these different things, of course, has to be tested. I mean, when you test these as well, you test them in a process. You don't go from just seeing the characterization of a plasma source to then going, right, where's my patient? Mm. So well, you have... go via PhD students. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, so you have things like cell lines, so you can just grow these cells in a lab, and then we can use we can actually use a plasma on these cell lines to see what effect it has. If we have some positive um, outcomes on this, we can then move forward to let's say primary tissue cells, which are tissue cells from people with the with cancer, let's say. And so there's a whole host of steps you go through before getting to the final process, which is why biomedical research takes so long, because you have to prove that it, whilst it does its job, you have to prove also it's not dangerous in other ways. So this isn't going to be a very quick process. However, there is a lot of work going into this. Yeah, and the potential gain is like incredibly yeah, high. Yeah, enormous. I mean, the idea is eventually we may have localised treatment for cancer, which is something we do not have right now, and that would have a huge effect on the biomedical world. At the very least, you're making the life better for the patient without having to use, for example, things that are currently used to reduce the size of tumours or things like hydrogen peroxide and that kind of uh, things, which are not great for patient well-being because it causes quite a nasty de- uh, cell death and so uh, around the, the tumour, and it's not particularly uh, very clean. But if you use a plasma, uh, it's uh, you know much, much nicer. You're not using these chemicals, and you have much more control over exactly what area of the tumour you start to treat, and you can just slowly work away until the tumour is removable by surgery. I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, these plasma sources operate over, let's say, you can have a millimetre. So therefore, in theory, you could treat only a millimetre of living tissue. So if you have, let's say, prostate cancer or breast cancer, you could treat just the part of the prostate of the breast that actually has the cancer, rather than blasting the entire thing with radiation. Yeah. With that, we should move away from medical applications, because we don't know what dark roads we're going to go down. Um, I'm going to have one last say about medical plasmas. Uh, I've actually uh, discussed this uh, my work with several people. Uh, at least two have stayed awake uh, till the end of my discussion. Um, and one of them uh, got confused because I had mentioned quite a few different things. You know, I've mentioned, oh, low-temperature plasmas can do everything. They can clean your bed, they can make children, they can do whatever you want. And uh, they thought that uh, I was telling them about the cancer research part of it, and then I moved very swiftly on to the uh, propulsion side of it, and I sort of moved on too quickly, and they thought we were using the same sources, so we were literally using spacecraft propulsion to cure prostate cancer, (laughs) which would be a reasonably aggressive way of curing prostate (laughs) cancer. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think you can't have prostate cancer if you're dead. Well, true. I mean, it get, does get rid of the cancer, but yeah. it, it also kind of... Uh, Gets rid of the prostate it, it, and the person? It, it, yeah, it removes most of the person, or at least puts them into orbit. So, you know, they get to... It depends which way the thruster is pointed when you insert it into the rectum. So, okay, propulsion. Spacecraft propulsion. If you imagine you're in a pool, right? I'm going to take you to a swimming pool for a while. And uh, if you want to move in the pool, then you have to push a water away from you. Um, to move forwards. So you push water behind you and you move forwards. Um, and in space, you, there's nothing to push off of, right? When you run, you're running against the ground. You're kind of literally, you know, running against the earth. Um, you all know Newton's third law. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And so that's typically how we locomote, how we move on earth. But in space, you can't do that. You've got to, you've got to throw something of yourself away in order to move. And so the faster you can throw this thing, the better, right? Because if you imagine you're floating in space and you have a tiny little hammer, 
if you chuck that hammer in one direction, then you'll move in the opposite direction. Now imagine you're holding a massive sledgehammer. If you, I don't know why I've chose hammers for this. If you chuck the sledgehammer, then you'll move in that direction faster, right? Because it's heavier. And similarly, if you imagine having a small hammer and you throw it faster, you'll move. Yeah, so, so, so it's just conservation of momentum. Yeah, it's mass and velocity. So you can either throw more mass or you can throw the same mass faster. And as we mentioned, in plasmas, you have all these charged particles and these sheaths in which there are electric fields. And so we can use the electric fields in the sheaths and we can use uh, the charged particles and we can accelerate these particles to really, really fast speeds out the back of the ship. And then the ship moves along in the opposite direction. Um, and so it's just a, it's an efficient way of making things move fast. Well, I mean, sure, they're moving very, very fast, but like we're talking atoms, so they're going to be not very heavy. So how, how much acceleration, how much push, push, push can you get from using these plasma thrusters? Not much, admittedly, not compared to chemical thrusters. So uh, I'll just say chemical thrusters are any thruster that burns something to move. Um, so most things you would have seen on TVs and stuff will have like boosters and chemical Stuff. Any any sort of rocket that you typically see, uh, anything launching from Earth will have a chemical thruster. Uh, anything with a massive plume of smoke behind it is a chemical thruster. Um, so, you know, my career. But um, the uh, plasma thrusters, they typically only throw out, like, you know, they'll throw out a few million atoms, yay, but atoms, as you say, are not particularly heavy. And so you don't get much thrust. Um, you're talking ooh, thousands of times less than traditional thrusters. However... They use tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands times less mass of fuel. So you get a lot less thrust, but you can sort of continue to use your engine for, say, 100 times longer. Is the, do you have more fuel because you're only sending out very few atoms, or do you have more fuel because you're sending them out but more efficiently? So, you, um, you have, so for the same amount of fuel, you're sending it out more efficiently. Okay. So if you use a chemical, it's all to do with the speed. So, um, so with a chemical thruster, if you have like I don't know hydrogen and oxygen, um, then the typical speeds of the atoms when you you know essentially blow them up, the typical speeds of the atoms are around four kilometers per second. For reference, a bullet travels about two, three kilometers a second, so they're going really fast. But the typical exit speed for say a Hall effect thruster, which is one of the most commonly used ones, that's thirty kilometers per second. So they're traveling, you know, on the order, you know, eight to ten times faster yeah. than the um, than the the chemical thruster. So you so use eight to ten times less fuel in that case. A lot more bang for your buck. Exactly. Yeah. Another good thing is that you can use electricity. So we use electricity to heat the fuel as opposed to carrying around a literal tank of explosives with you. So it's way way safer as well. Yeah, because I mean, in well, I mean, I'm sure you know, whenever space rockets are flying off, they're often like jettison a bunch of booster rockets and stuff like that because they have to ha carry basically massive tanks of fuel out as big as the rocket itself if not bigger mm -hmm. just to get it out into space oh, i mean yeah. i imagine you'd have to use a chemical ones to get it into space you, but once you're in space you could use the plasma ones precisely yeah you still launch them from the earth because the thrust is so small it's like you can't launch them from the earth but once they're in space you can use the plasma and it's much safer and if you've got solar panels and fuel you can just go forever um, presuming the sun doesn't go out, which is more fusion type question. Oh, I tried to get some of the beer in the cake that was four days old. Mm, wait. Very cloudy. Don't drink that beer. Oh, we have. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> when? Wait. When? About like half an hour ago. I, put, I even put a poster on saying, don't drink me, I don't taste good anymore. <laughs> that well, was a great episode. That was a really fun episode. I learned so much. Same. Even though I may have not been in it. Same.
So I think uh, for our many listeners, we would really appreciate if you subscribe to our podcast on whatever app you're listening on. Yeah, and check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Just search A Glass of Seawater and we'll come right up. Finally, just uh, if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful. That would really help us. It greatly increases the visibility of the podcast, probably more than anything else. And tell all your friends and enemies. That was a really good episode. I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. See you next time for the next glass of seawater. Bye.